I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views was brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got a great double feature for you. First up, we'll be speaking with Jonathan M. Katz, journalist and author of Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. Now, if you know anything about me, I am a huge fan of Smedley Darlington Butler and his classic anti-war short book, War is a Racket. But there's also a dark side to Smedley Butler, one that he openly admitted to. In fact, it's actually where the title of Jonathan's book comes from. Butler called himself a gangster for capitalism before he became a critic of war. We'll be talking about all of that and much more in this thorough conversation with Jonathan M. Katz that not only covers Smedley Butler, but in its own way, the history of America's empire through the biography of Smedley Butler, and believe it or not, we even get into the topic of zombies. Find out why in the conversation with Jonathan M. Katz. But before we get to that, I want to say that later in the show, we'll be talking with Liza Featherstone of Jacobin Magazine about the passing of United States diplomat Madeleine Albright. And fair warning, it's not going to be a hagiography, but a rather critical look at Albright's career. But first, Jonathan M. Katz, author of Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. 
Welcome to Parallax Views. Jonathan M. Katz, author of the new book, Gangsters of Capitalism. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. And I'm very excited about uh, this episode because I'm, well, I guess I would say I'm a big fan of General Smedley Darlington Butler. Uh, I've always been one of those kids who was, uh, you know, averse to war. I'm very much on the sort of anti-war side of the, uh, you know, spectrum when it comes to those issues. Uh, but it's interesting because this book may make me think of, and me and others think of uh, Butler in a, in a different light, because it's not all, you know, just uh, the heroic anti-war guy. There's a story oh. before that. And in a way, what makes this book really interesting is that it's not really just a biography of Smedley Butler. I would say it's a history of American empire and imperialism. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what I was going for. Uh, I, uh, you know, it was, I was, I was playing with a lot of different forms and genre and biography was one of them. Um, and Butler's life is, is, you know, sort of the, the, uh, the, you know, the clothesline that, that, that I, I hang everything else off of. Um, and Butler's life, I mean, you know, he, he, he lived this, like, you know, from a writing standpoint, just like this perfect life to have this arc, uh, where he starts in the Marines at, at, uh, 16 and 1898, like the year where America's empire turns from a, a continental one to, to a global one. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, goes right until the eve of, of America's entry into World War II. Um, so, you know, it made it a, you know, it, it, it was, it was the, it was, it was the max match of sort of Butler's life and his own trajectory with the, the trajectory of American empire and the United States and, and our history of war um, that really drew, drew me to him as, as a character. Uh, and I'm glad all of that came through in, in the reading of the book. So for people that are unfamiliar, uh, maybe you could give a brief summary of uh, who Smedley Butler was. And that's kind of hard to do because he was many things. He was a Quaker. He was a Marine. Uh, he was a number of things. Yeah. Um, so that's a bunch of them. Um, he was the, you know, he was a, a, a kid from, you know, he grew up a kid on, on uh, Philadelphia's main line, uh, the son of a congressman uh, and, and, and the son, his, his mother was, was, uh, uh, you know, a member of a, a, a very prominent, very wealthy, you know, Philadelphia family, the Darlingtons. Um, and he joined the Marines uh, at the age of 16 in order to fight in Cuba. In what's That's very as... odd too, isn't it, for a, a Quaker? Because Quakers are known for, I guess, pacifism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the his family had a tradition in it. Uh, they were part of a, a sub-tradition of, of Quakerism known as fighting Quakers. It's a very American thing. Um, his great, Both of his grandfathers, actually, uh, both his mother's father and his father's father, uh, fought in the Civil War. Um, which was, again, it was unusual for Quakers, but that was, that was considered a special case for some Quakers uh, because it was a war of abolition uh, from the perspective of, of the United States, of the Union Army. Um, and, and so like some exceptions were, were made in those cases. I mean, Quakers, you know, I, I learned a lot more about Quakers and Quakerism as I was, as I was uh, doing the research for the book. 
Um, you know, it's 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 a fascinating uh, uh, sect, it's a fascinating group of people, it's a fascinating religion. Um, you know, I learned, you know, even sort of uh, in, in in writing the first chapter of the book, I I, I went into the life of William Penn, um, you know, who who kind of brought Quakerism to uh, North America and, you know, founds essentially the the, the state of, of Pennsylvania and the city of, of Philadelphia. And, you know, he like he was a he owned slaves, which was shocked me. I didn't know that until I, I was doing the research for this book. Um, and he was already like he was already this sort of, uh, uh, you know, tension point between sort of Quakers as a religion of peace and as a, as a religion of equality and then also like, like, a, like he was like a Quaker settler colonialist who like, who again, like owned, you know, enslaved people, um, you know, the Quaker like abolition tradition didn't really start until, until after him. And so like, so Butler is an inheritor of like Quakerism as the, as the peace testimony, as, as this like, you know, religion of like anti-hierarchy, anti, uh, uh, you know, and, and pro-equality uh, and pro-egalitarianism and pro-peace. Um, but he's also coming, but it's also a religion from England that comes out of this sort of, you know, imperialist tradition and is, is, is part and parcel of uh, uh, the United States and, and our like origins in, in a settler colonial project. Um, and so like, you know, to, a, to some extent, like the, these tensions, you know, exist within him and within his family, even before he, he goes to war. Um, you know, by, by 1898, sorry, you're, you're about to say something. No, I, I just was going to say real quickly, and then I want to get back to the biography. Yeah. Another thing is that in addition to this book being about Smedley Butler and also simultaneously being about the history of American empire and imperialism, it's actually also about, you know, the, the story of, I think, America in general and how Americans grapple with their own contradictions. We have a stated ideal that we live by. But then, you know, we don't always live up to those ideals and exactly. those contradictions in a lot of ways embody Smedley Butler. And we'll get into that. But yeah. uh, f finish with the, the sort of brief uh, biography. Yeah. So, yeah, we went completely off track. But but I mean, but you're exactly right. And this is what this is. That's exactly what draws me to him as, as a character. And it's why I, I spent so many years writing a book about him. So he, he joins the Marines. Um, against the, the objections of his father, against the objections of the Quaker meeting, um, and, and against the, the age requirement of the Marines. Um, he lies about his age, and he goes to Cuba. He goes to Guantanamo Bay, which is the first place that the United States uh, invades in, in Cuba at, when it was a Spanish colony, and, and, then, and then we sort of seize in perpetuity. Um, and from there, he 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 just decides to like go all in, you know, in 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 in, uh, in modern day military terms, he decides to go career. Um, he he goes to the Philippines, uh, where the United States is annexing and colonizing um, as part of that same war. Um, although we sort of start a new war against the Filipinos when we betray them. Um, he invades China. He is in Latin America. <coughs> he's in Latin America. He's in the Caribbean. Um, he. Uh, uh, goes back to China at the end of his, his career in, in, in another invasion. He is in World War I uh, as a general, um, overseeing sort of an embarkation, di disembarkation camp. And uh, he uh, uh, retires in 1931 uh, as a major general, um, twice the recipient of the Medal of Honor. He's, he's you know, uh, uh, by uh, one of, by some measures, the most decorated uh, warfighter, um, at least of his generation up to his time. 
Um, and uh, and then, you know, as as you and and I think a lot of the, the people listening to this know, he then um, goes into a sort of a, a second career as eventually an anti-war, anti-imperialist activist um, that kind of starts with his advocacy uh, in the bonus march for for veterans' rights, um, and then uh, you know he's kind of further radicalized by uh, uh, you know his his uh, 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 involvement in and his involvement as a whistleblower in uh, a fascist coup plot to overthrow Franklin Delano Roosevelt in, in 1934, um, and then he writes you know War as a Racket, a, a great anti-war tract. Um, and uh, a series of, of uh, articles um, that go that, that are even actually more radical than than, than Wars a Racket, and actually sometimes are, are confused with with Wars a Racket. He writes them in the same year um, for the for the socialist magazine Common Sense, um, and that was where he it was in that series of articles uh, that he sort of makes you know as as I would term it his his famous confession uh, where he talks about. Uh, all the horrible things that he did, essentially, you know, very in, in brief, um, but he, he enumerates his crimes and then and then says that, uh, you know, in, in all of his years as a Marine, uh, that he was a, a racketeer for capitalism, which is where the title of my book comes from. Um, and then he spends, you know, sort of the last, uh, you know, half decade of his life, um, I mean, really the last decade of his life in full, uh, trying to prevent uh, what, what, what becomes the Second World War. Um, and arguing against uh, America's participation in it. He spends the, the last years of his life um, essentially trying to prevent the Second World War, um, specifically a Pacific War against Japan. That's, that's the one that he really sees coming. But at the same time, we should note here, he wasn't, you know, necessarily like a America first uh, Charles oh, no. Lindbergh style character either that may have had sympathies for you know, brown shirt fascist elements. He was very anti-fascist. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, you know, his his uh, his whistleblowing of the business plot was all about uh, anti-fascism. Um, and, you know, he uh, he 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 decried, uh, you know, uh, Hitler uh, as a mad dog. Um, his the end of his Marine career was in 1931. He got court martialed for for insulting uh, Benito Mussolini in a speech. Um, yeah, no, he he was not about fascism at all. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the American fascists, um, both sort of the Hitlerite fascists and kind of the the attitudinal, you know, uh, uh, business fascists um, that tried to recruit him for, for, for the business plot um, had no idea what to do with him. Like he was he was he was not their ally. Um, the communists were sort of attracted to him, but they also. Uh, uh, Earl Browder, the head of the, the uh, you know Communist Party of the United States, um, you know, said like you know he's he has no politics, like he's just a soldier fighting for the soldiers. Uh, we don't know what to do with him either. Um, he was he was you know uh, Butler considered himself um, you know right until the end uh, an Americanist. I mean he you know I, I think he wouldn't have used the term nationalism, um, but I but I think that was sort of how he approached it. I mean he you know he. Uh, as as much as he decried American foreign policy and and his role in it, um, he never questioned really uh, the the you know sort of uh, what I, I guess you might call like the founding the founding myths of of the United States. Well, he um, he, he wanted. Yeah. It sounds like he wanted America uh, to live up to the ideals of you know we're pro democracy. Yeah, 
Yeah, he believed. I mean, yeah, he believed. He believed in. He believed in the whole thing. Um, and it's a good thing to believe in. It's 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 the it's it is it is the thing that has kept America from from uh, going down uh, of uh, the worst of, of of roots of, of authoritarianism. Um, it, you know, d- despite the fact that we have we have had authoritarianism at home and 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 practices it abroad, um, it gets worse than the United States. And and it, and uh, you know the 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 things that you know. The things that that uh, you know, America and Americanism are are predicated on. You know, the the, the idea that uh, you know that, that that we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal, um, and that and that you know we should have uh, that, that that people should have a right to self determination and to self government, um, and and uh, to decry tyranny um, are things that not only not only uh, you know Smedley Butler believed in. Um, but you know, uh, uh, you know, all, you know, and 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 you encounter this um, going through the, the period of, of history that I'm covering here, and and in reading gangsters, um, they were things that the people that that we conquered believe in. You know, th- these were ideals. You know, these were ideals as expressed by America. Um, that that you know, Aguin- uh, Emilio Aguinaldo and the Filipino um, uh, independentists uh, looked up to. Um, that Ho Chi Minh looked up to in Vietnam. And he, you know, Ho Chi Minh quotes Thomas Jefferson. And 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 earlier than that, like, uh, you know, before, uh, uh, you know, what you would call the Vietnam War. And I talk about this, I think, in a, in a, you know, in an end note. I don't even think it's in a footnote. I think it's in an end note in the book. Ho Chi Minh, oh no, it's, a, it's in a footnote, sorry. Ho Chi Minh goes to um, Woodrow Wilson at the Paris Peace Conference um, and is like, Hey, you're America. Like you believe in in self determination. Like you know, come help my people in Vietnam get self determination and freedom from the French. Uh, you know, and, and Woodrow Wilson, being a racist son of a bitch, you know, tells him to basically to get lost. Um, but you know, it's this is a real thing, and it's and it's a real thing that exists in the world. It's a good thing that exists in the world, and Smedley Butler, among others, believed in it. So it's interesting uh, throughout his life. You know, he basically became something of a celebrity. You know, he had nicknames, yeah. you know, the fighting hell devil marine, old gimlet eye, the leathernecks friend. And you, you can even look at books uh, like uh, the, the book Old Gimlet Eye, uh, mm-hmm. The Adventures of uh, Smedley D. Butler. And, you know, there's a lot of mythologizing, I think, when it comes to Butler. And, you know, he may not be as well known in the mainstream, but it's funny, I've talked to people that I would say are in the mainstream world that, you know, if you, if you ask them about Smedley Butler, they'll say, Oh, I love, you know, Smedley Butler. I think uh, Malcolm Nance has like a man cave devoted to him or something. Um, He's talked about that. So a lot of people in the know know who Smedley Butler is, but many don't know him outside of that. Why do you think that is? I think it's it's a number of things. I think that it, it Smelly Butler is very inconvenient, honestly, for everybody. Like in in the same in the same way that that um, that that you know the America Firsters and and the communists and the Democrats and the socialists didn't have any idea exactly what to do with him. You know, in in uh, in the last years of his life, um, he's 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 very he's very hard to to pin down. Um, you know, for all the reasons that we're talking about. So, so he, he becomes sort of inconvenient 
for almost any purpose, except as except as a, a writer of narrative nonfiction um, and somebody who's trying to sort of you know uh, uh, make a more you know a problematic case um, for all these things, I guess as as I am, maybe he was convenient for me. But generally speaking, like you know, it, he 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 is he is inconvenient for anybody who's trying to tell a simple story about anything. So that's yeah, one. Yeah, I, I was going to say really yeah. quickly. You know, on one hand, I think you have certain generals even to this day that, you know, the warrior types that are like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Bradley Butler was great up until when he became the anti-war guy. Right, and then I right. think you have people like me who are, you know, very much on that uh, sort of anti-war sort of wavelength that you look at his early career and you're like, oh, this is nasty. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, the, the, like, you know, anti-war people and I, I consider myself anti-war as well. Uh, uh, in that I do not like war <laughs> unless it was absolutely necessary. And it is very, very rare that it ever is. Um, uh, but uh, uh, the, um, uh, you know, so, so, you know, people who, who are aware of Butler in the anti-war tradition, you know, they know about him because of, you know, the things he said about, you know, like I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics. Uh, I made, uh, you know, uh, Mexico and Tampico safe for the oil companies. I made sure Standard Oil had its way, et cetera. Um, you know, like he, he, he isn't kidding there. Like, he, and that's one of the things that I think, you know, really comes through when you actually dig into his life. Like he really did that stuff and more. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and, you know, decrying it later in his life doesn't change the fact that he did it. Um, it's interesting too, yeah. because in a way, I know you've talked about this before, but when you, maybe we could get into how you began this book because you actually came at Smedley Butler from a di- very different way than a lot of us. You know, it yeah. wasn't through reading War as a Racket. It was from investigating Haiti. And yeah. he is not very well liked in Haiti. No, exactly. That's exactly right. So yeah, I, yeah. So, so the first, so the first thing I knew about him, I, I was the, um, I was the Associated Press correspondent in Haiti uh, for, for, uh, from 2007 until 2011, uh, which for those of you who who remember these sorts of things, uh, you'll remember that there was a big earthquake in Haiti in 2010, uh, the deadliest earthquake ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere between, uh, between uh, 100,000 and 316,000 people died. Uh, my house was destroyed around me. A, a lot of my friends lost their lives. And um, it, it, was, it, was, it was in Haiti, um, first when I moved there and then after the earthquake, when I was writing a book about the earthquake and, and, and the response, um, that I, I you know, encountered Smedley Butler through the lens of the U.S. occupation of Haiti, um, which again, for Americans who don't know, uh, the U.S. invaded Haiti uh, in 1915. Um, and set up a formal occupation that was the official name of it, the United States Occupation of Haiti, uh, that lasted for 19 years. It was a, a record of, of brutal occupation um, and the longest continuous U.S. military occupation until uh, we just broke that record um, a, a little over a year ago in Afghanistan. And Haitians um, remember the Haiti, the, the American occupation, um, very well. I mean, it it, it, it forms a a cornerstone of Haitian historic, historical memory uh, of their own self story and of their understanding of, of uh, their relationship with the United States, uh, which is very, it's a very complex relationship as it often is between um, a former colony or a formal, formal, form, formerly occupied place um, and, and, and the metropole, the empire. Um, and Butler played a significant role, not only in that occupation, but in the memory of that occupation. 
Um, you know, I talk about in, in Gangsters, um, uh, there's a book that comes out toward the end of the U.S. occupation of Haiti uh, in, in the early 1930s uh, by a guy named uh, Stefan Alexi, um, who's, who's actually the father of an even more famous uh, Haitian writer. Um, uh, uh, and uh, Stefan Alexi writes a book called uh, Le Negre Masque, the, the, the Masked Negro, um, in which uh, the, the hero of, of that book um, is, is, you know, a, a Haitian lawyer, a brilliant Haitian lawyer who's fighting against the, the Marine occupiers. Um, and, and the lead Marine occupier is, is a villain named Smedley Seton, which is, who, who is a, a very thinly veiled, although also extremely fictionalized, um, a version of Smedley Butler. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're wondering how Haitians think of Smedley Butler, uh, the, the hero of, of that book, um, kills uh, the, the the marine, the fake Smedley, um, in in the final act. Uh, he 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 comes upon him in a plane crash um, and notices that he has survived the plane crash and then plunges a bayonet through his throat. So that that's what Haitians thought of Smedley Butler. So, um, so for, that, for listeners yeah. that that don't know, like right. what what exactly did Marines like Butler do in Haiti? Why why is there such anger towards Smedley Butler and these Marines? It's 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 a number of things that all sort of go down to uh, uh, you know the, the crushing of of, uh, of 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 Haitian democracy and the crushing of of Haitian independence and 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 the crushing of, of Haitian freedom. Um, Haiti is a country that was founded uh, in uh, you know one of the most spectacular moments in history, the, the Haitian Revolution of of 1791 to, to 1804. They win their freedom in in, in the only successful um, uh, revolution by enslaved people uh, in in modern history. And the, the Americans invade in, in 1915 and uh, uh, and and, you know, just and, and destroy um, their democracy, which, you know, was incredibly hard won. Um, and, and, and it, this is not yeah. exactly uh I mean, it's a pretty violent overthrow. It's a very violent overthrow. It's it's it actually so it starts in in late 1914 with with a bank robbery. The Marines and robbed the Central Bank of Haiti. Butler is not among them, although he certainly would have been if his orders had, had been to, to to carry this out. Um, but but uh, um, Marines uh, robbed the Central Bank of Haiti at the behest of Citibank. Um, essentially, in the wake of the Haitian Revolution, France imposes a a, a crippling indemnity on Haitian governments uh, in exchange for diplomatic recognition, their recognition as a country. And uh, the um, uh, in order to pay off this debt, which Haiti does in full, they take out a, a, a series of ancillary loans uh, to basically you know, shore up their balance of payments. And a lot of those loans are taken from American banks, especially Citibank. And this the debt that Haiti had taken on in exchange for for its recognition and 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 uh, the recognition of its independence um, had had created huge um, uh, you know uh, privation and political instability and Citibank uses this political instability as a pretext for calling for this this uh, bank robbery where where the United States. Uh, steals half the the gold reserves in in Haiti's central bank and takes them to Wall Street and puts them in in a vault, 
Um, and this then, you know, takes an already spiraling uh, politically unstable situation and, and, and ramps it up into overdrive. And a, uh, a basically a pro-U.S. president uh, comes to power in Haiti. Um, but, you know, Haitians are so angry at the United States and, you know, in, in the wake of this bank robbery. Um, that they start, they rise up against this president. Uh, and long story short, the president is assassinated. And uh, Woodrow Wilson uses this assassination as a pretext for a full U.S. invasion. And in invading Haiti, um, we we uh, uh, overthrow their president. We we install a puppet president uh, who will be compliant to to, to us. Uh, we destroy their armed forces, uh, the the army uh, that that uh, you know that that in, in Haitian uh, memory was the army that defeated Napoleon and defeated the French and and overthrew slavery. Um, and then uh, uh, over the course of this uh, you know these first couple of years, um, Smedley Butler personally. Uh, crushes uh, an insurgency. We he helps invent counterinsurgency doctrine in doing so. Um, brutal, brutal massacres. Uh, he re, he he uh, creates a client military, the Gendarmerie de IT. He reimposes slavery on a country founded. Their one thing, like the one thing in Haiti, is that they were an anti-slavery country that was founded by formerly enslaved people. Smedley Butler reimposes slavery on Haiti for the purpose of building roads for the U.S. occupation, as well as you know sewing uniforms and 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 other sundry tasks like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, as I guess sort of a coup de grace, um, Butler leads an armed column of his, his client uh, constabulary and Marines into the Haitian parliament, uh, the, the last surviving uh, democratic institution in the country, and dissolves it at gunpoint um, uh, for the purpose of uh, compelling the, the, the passage of a uh, uh, U.S. Constitution, uh, a U.S. written constitution uh, that allows uh, foreigners to own land uh, in Haiti, which which has very very deep uh, psychic roots uh, in in sort of the, the memory of slavery and 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 the end of the plantation system, which was why Haitians didn't want want foreigners to be able to do that. And uh, yeah, I mean, and this is you know this this is still remembered today, and and everything basically that happens in Haiti after the U.S. occupation um, is, is, is basically, you know, either in reaction to or in reaction to a reaction to um, the U.S. occupation. It, it is, it is it, you, you really cannot uh, overstate um, uh, how important uh, uh, that period is in, in Haitian historical memory. I mean, the, on, the only thing that, that, that exceeds it is, is memory of, of, you know, the original French enslavement and, and, and French colonization. But, but it's, 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 in some cases, it can be a close tie. So I want to get into the effect that Haiti had on uh, Smedley Butler. But first, we, we have to get into this because I know you talk about it a little bit in the book. People are going to be shocked by this curveball. Zombies. How do zombies tie into all of this? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you for bringing up zombies. I do not have, I have, I do so many interviews and nobody brings up zombies. I always just want to be talking about zombies. Let's talk about zombies. Zombie, the, the zombie uh, comes into American pop culture through the U.S. occupation of Haiti. Um, uh, the zombie is a uh, it's 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 part of of, of Haitian uh, religious belief and 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 uh, religious practice. Um, it, it's it comes out of Haitian uh, vodou, 
um, uh, it's, 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 it's sort of tied to it, although it's not central to it. Um, but essentially in Haiti, uh, uh, the zombie uh, or the zombie kokadav, which is, is the, the, the walking dead, the, the, the zombie uh, that, is, that is trapped in, in, in a reanimated corpse, essentially. Zombie in, 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 in Haitian uh, uh, folk belief is, is essentially just sort of a, the spirit of the recently dead that, that is still on earth for some reason. And uh, the zombie kokadav, the, the Haitian zombie, is a, a remembrance of slavery. Um, the, the zombie is is controlled by a sorcerer um, and and actually can be uh, uh, reawoken from their zombiehood um, if they taste either salt or meat, uh, which has interesting sort of a, 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 a psychohistorical uh, roots to that belief. Um, the Americans encounter uh, the zombie in in Haitian belief. Um, it's actually a, a guy named uh, uh, William uh, Seabrook. Uh, who writes a book called The Magic Island. He's actually, um, uh, he's kind of a, a, a journalist, magical realist. Um, he writes kind of a, a travelogue of, of Haiti uh, called The Magic Island. And uh, in it, he, he has a, a part about uh, his exploration of this idea of the zombie. Um, and, he, and, and in his initial zombie story, so the first zombie story ever written in English, um, uh, uh, at least one that, 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 that Americans had read, um, the, the zombies are actually, um, slave labor for an American corporation, the Haitian American sugar corporation, which is one of the main, uh, uh, businesses supported by the U S occupation. Um, and, and they're basically, you know, just free labor, um, you know, working as, as drudges in, 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 in the sugar fields for, for this American company. Um, but this then popularizes the idea of the zombie in, in America. Uh, and uh, in uh, the 1930s, um, while, the Haitian, while the U.S. occupation of Haiti is still going on, uh, there's first a play and then a movie. The first zombie movie is made uh, called White Zombie. With Bela uh, Lugosi. Bela Lugosi, fresh off of his star turn as Dracula. Uh, he, plays a, 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 he plays a Haitian. Uh, a, like I guess a white Haitian uh, 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 Bokor, a white Haitian sorcerer um, uh, named named uh, 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 Murder Legrand, and he uh, and 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 the movie is all about um, this uh, uh, you know this blonde ingenue, the white zombie in, of the title is is a is a white American woman um, who uh, has come to Haiti to uh, marry her. Uh, her 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 uh, banker fiance, who's there as part of of the U.S. occupation, uh, and and basically a a uh, a French guy is jealous of him, and so he convinces this Haitian uh, uh, sorcerer played by Bela Lugosi to zombify her, and and sort of the, the action kind of spirals from there. Um, this and, this, this yeah. ends up telling us a lot, right, about yes. uh, the connection between racism and and colonialism. And, uh, you know, how we have viewed Haiti over uh, the, the decades and years. Yeah, very much so. I mean, and, 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 and you know, zombies remain um, uh, inherently racialized, uh, explicitly racialized and explicitly Haitian for the first couple of decades after this. But I think if, if you look at, you know, zombie literature um, and, you know, in that I'm including, you know, shows like The Walking Dead and Resident Evil and, and like, you know, all all forms of literature, including video games and, 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 and movies and TV shows. Um, uh, that, that subtext 
kind of remains where, where the zombie is sort of the, the malicious other um, who, who is, is, you know, uh, you know, storming our borders or, or, or trying to take our stuff or trying to take our women, um, or, or, uh, or whatever, um, that, that kind of remains uh, the way that, you know, people who are from a colonial tradition like Americans uh, look at zombies, the zombie also remains, uh, you know, it, it then is kind of re uh, uh, imported and, and reimagined in, in much of the rest of the world in, in the, in the colonized and the decolonizing world um, as sort of this earlier uh, uh, and, and I guess, you know, still present in Haiti uh, idea of the zombie as sort of a, a remembrance of having been dominated, of, of having been enslaved. Um, you know, in the book, I talk about uh, Fela Kuti's, uh, uh, you know, great song, uh, Zombie, where he's sort of uh, comparing the, the Nigerian, uh, the, the post-colonial Nigerian army to, to zombies. Um, but yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it really goes deep. Um, uh, and, and it's, and, 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 you know, the, 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 the ties between uh, race and racism and zombies. Uh, there's a great uh, Key and Peele sketch um, uh, uh, about sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, white zombies who are still racist against the, the, the living black people played by them that you should check out. Anyway, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating history and it all goes back to, it all goes back to uh, uh, the U.S. occupation of, of Haiti and to, and to Smedley Butler because Smedley Butler in his, his capacity as head of the, the Gendarmerie of Haiti, um, this uh, uh, constabulary force, one of their primary uh, missions was to stomp out voodoo, to, to, to outlaw um, Haitian religion. Uh, and, and in so doing, uh, his Marines end up coming in closer contact with voodoo. And so some of the actually earliest uh, uh, stories, uh, you know, the, the earliest, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, sensationalized, uh, you know, racialized uh, uh, horror stories of, about uh, voodoo and, 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 uh, and zombies um, come uh, from Marines, including a Marine who, who collaborated with Butler as, as a ghostwriter um, on, uh, on one of his first books on, on his, his sort of uh, pop, uh, pop uh, you know, boys novel uh, version of, of his uh, uh, time in Mexico. So, so, uh, if, so we have uh, Smelly Butler to thank for a lot of things. And one of them, honestly, is, is the zombie. That's the weirdest thing about Smedley Butler. I, I, I hesitate to use this comparison, but uh, I, I think people get it without thinking that I'm uh, besmirching Smedley Butler here. But he's almost like the Forrest Gump of America's story of empire. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or, or, or maybe a Zelig, if, 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 if you, if you want to sort of take out the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the intelligence uh, idea of it. Uh, although Butler, you know, then he says in, in the 1930s that his his mental faculties were in suspended animation for the entirety of his his uh, military career. Although I think he's 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 at once sort of being too hard and too easy on himself. But and yeah, he no, also he's exactly did not that. want to be memorialized while he was alive. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, uh, uh, he has a, um, uh, a, a a plaque is made to him. Uh, so one of the other things that Smedley Butler does in this, you know, like Forrest Gump thing of his career, where he's just everywhere doing everything, uh, is he plays a central role in the militarization of American police. 
because he runs the Philadelphia police force uh, in, in the 1920s for a couple of years. He takes the leave from the Marine Corps um, to fight against the, the gangsters in prohibition. This is where he gets the idea of racket and racketeers and war as a racket from. It's from, from that time. Um, and uh, he ends up um, uh, basically his, his career sort of ends in, in, in uh, controversy and, 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 you know, failure because uh, he realizes that the, the, uh, the gangsters uh, in Philadelphia who are, are in charge of the bootlegging um, are being protected and in some ways uh, answering to uh, the real gangsters who are the, the politicians in Philadelphia, the, the members Philadelphia of the Philadelphia political machine. Exactly. It was called the Republican organization. Um, but yeah, exactly. And, uh, and so like in, in tribute to Butler, um, a group of sort of, you know, dries of, of prohibitionists, uh, uh, you know, makes a, a, a plaque in his honor and says, you know, he was incorruptible. Uh, and, and Butler is like, uh, Butler hates it. It's <laughs> so like, he calls it a tombstone to a living man, um, and says he doesn't care if they, if they put it up or not. Uh, but it is now, uh, today it is, it is, uh, hanging in the, uh, one of the entryways to uh, uh, the city hall in Philadelphia, if you're ever in town. So I know we only have um, maybe 12 minutes left here, but th there's two more things I wanted to cover. I, sure. I want to get into the, the turning point for Smedley Butler and how he ends up uh, going against the empire uh, in a lot of ways. So w what happens there? And could you talk a little bit about this concept of a, uh, moral injury and the moral injury he sort of suffers from all these uh, acts he's done ac across the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I very much recognize in, in Butler, um, first of all, you know, somebody who, who very clearly uh, suffered from uh, PTSD, um, which, which is, is uh, uh, something that I have to have dealt with in, in my life. Um, uh, especially in, in the aftermath of, of, of the Haiti earthquake in, in my personal case. Um, and, you know, as, as somebody who, uh, you know, it's, it's a little hard to explain, but, you know, I guess, you know, kind of game recognizes game, like somebody who's dealing with PTSD um, in the good and bad of PTSD. I mean, I, they're actually, you know, dare I say some, 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 some positive aspects. I mean, I think, you know, like the, 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 uh, you know, hyper uh, being hyper vigilant isn't particularly useful on a daily basis. Um, but, but there is a certain sort of uh, awareness and, and, and thus kind of empathy um, that comes from having PTSD. And I see that in Butler in, in his, in his writings. And by the way, the reason I, uh, and, 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 you know, I think this all becomes clear in the book, but the reason why I, I feel like I can make such sort of, you know, definitive statements about like the mental health and, 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 and uh, the, the interior life of, of somebody who died, you know, 80 years ago um, is because he left such a voluminous uh, uh, just trove of letters um, that were just, you know, painstakingly preserved by his family. Um, yeah, so we, we just know what he was thinking at, at, at so many points along the way. Um, so Moral what was the yeah. what was the turning point uh, for Smedley Butler? Like, what what was the the shock to his system, so to speak, where he starts saying, "There's something wrong with this. There's there's something wrong here." 
Yeah. And, and so, and, and I was kind of, I mean, I, I guess maybe I was doing like a, a little bit of throat clearing there, but like, I actually see PTSD and moral injury, which is a related thing where you basically, where you have done or allowed to have happened something that is counter to your core morals. That's how psychologists term, term it. And, you know, I, I, I had some, um, I've gone back and forth and I've had some trepidation while I was writing the book in how much of his sort of late in life turn I wanted to ascribe to his mental state. Um, but I think it, it is something that, it, that at least bears worth playing with. Um, uh, he, you know, it, the, the feeling of moral injury, like the, the feeling of, of just, it's guilt, but it is much deeper than that. It, it, it forces a kind of introspection that leads that can, I mean, it can lead people to lots of different places, but, but it can lead people to sort of a, a form of, of, of deep introspection um, that, that ends up, you know, in, in uh, self-criticism and then sort of, you know, like just larger critical thinking. Um, and I think that is part of the explanation for how he got to where he got. Um, you know, it, it's also he's also responding to circumstance. I mean, he, you know, uh, he is is uh, he's very disappointed by by uh, his his uh, failure to to achieve uh, commandant of the Marine Corps. He is court martialed for insulting Benito Mussolini, as I noted earlier at the end of his career. What what exactly did he say about Mussolini, real quick? He tells a story uh, at a social club in Philadelphia. Uh, that was told to him by a journalist named Cornelius Vanderbilt IV. Um, and uh, Vanderbilt had been uh, traveling with Mussolini in Italy, and Mussolini runs over a child, as Vanderbilt tells it, and doesn't stop, and then just sort of brushes it off. And, and Butler and Vanderbilt kind of differ about exactly what, what Mussolini says, but it's essentially just like, screw that kid, is essentially the point. And Butler is telling that story in 1931 as a way of, of, of warning people that fascists are not to be trusted. Um, Mussolini at that point was calling for a disarmament conference in Europe uh, under the auspices of the League of Nations. And Butler is basically like, screw that guy. Like he is like he's a liar, he is a murderer, um, he's a bad person. And the United States has good relations with, with uh, Italy at that moment. In fact, many Americans, many powerful Americans, including in government, uh, very much look up to um, uh, Mussolini. He's considered, you know, this, this great modernizer who isn't, you know, who, who supposedly makes the trains run all on time, which is actually not true. And, uh, uh, you know, you know, isn't afraid to, to bash in the skulls of, of communists, um, which, which appealed to, to, you know, some people in America at the time. Uh, and, uh, the, the, you know, so the, the, the um, uh, the Hoover administration takes uh, the Italian government's concerns seriously, um, and they slap Butler with a court martial. And there's that, and then there's you know the the uh, the bonus march, which we don't really have time to get into. But the I I, I just yeah. real quick, I just want yeah. to talk about the bonus march okay. very very briefly because I haven't heard you address it in a lot of other interviews, and yeah. I think he's the real hero of the bonus march. Whereas you look at Douglas MacArthur, you look at uh, General Patton. Yeah, they, they weren't on the side of the marchers. No, not at all. Yeah, it just in short, uh, there's basically a months long protest in D.C. Uh, from people from all over the country, veterans of the First World War, 
um, demanding uh, back pay that had been promised to them during the war. Um, it's derided as a bonus, although the because it's sort of the idea is like, oh, this is money that they don't deserve. But it was it was really money that they had earned. Um, but uh, but the marchers kind of take this name as, as sort of a, a badge of honor, and they, they call themselves the the bonus army or the bonus expeditionary force. Um, and, and Smedley Butler says, you know, you you are the real Americans. You know, this exactly. is the the height of Americanism. Whereas I mentioned Patton earlier, Patton and, and MacArthur led a charge against them. Uh, the the yeah. cavalry charged these bonus marchers, yeah. and the spectators are screaming, "Shame, shame! How could you be doing this yeah. uh, to Patton?" And you know, I, I think it was uh, two soldiers. Uh, were injured in that and later died. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, two of the marchers are killed by by DC police at the beginning of this, and then a baby dies because um, the uh, the army launches a chemical weapon into the camp as they burn the camp down, um, and uh, uh, and a baby a baby dies um, uh, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, partially as a result. Um, as, as the doctor said, the, the gas the, the the gas didn't help. Um, but yeah, this is this is a horrible moment. And, and um, uh, among the people who uh, see this as sort of a, a defining moment in American history um, is Franklin Roosevelt, um, who hears about uh, it's called the Battle of Washington. And he hears about this uh, in, in the governor's mansion in, in Albany. Um, and he basically is like, my God, these are fascists. Like MacArthur's a fascist. Hoover just, you know, let this fascist and 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 leading the U.S. Army. MacArthur, MacArthur was chief of staff of the army at the time, uh, you know, attack American citizens, attack veterans who were just asking their government for help. Um, in, in the depths of, of the Great Depression. Um, and that was one of the things actually that uh, convinces FDR to go all in on, uh, on the New Deal um, and, and sort of, you know, his sort of modified form of, of social democracy and, and Keynesianism um, in order to show people that liberal democracy uh, and the power of power of, of a democratic government can still help them without having to turn to, uh, you know, an authoritarian uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, a violent, uh, you know, frankly, fascist like, like, uh, like MacArthur. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and that, that is a, ma that's a major reason why uh, for, for Butler's late in life turn. Um, I think it also was one of the reasons why um, the business plotters who, who recruit Smedley Butler to basically lead a coup to overthrow Franklin Roosevelt and, and end the New He's Deal. He's approached, I think, by Gerald Maguire and some exactly. other people from the American exactly. Legion. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, that is um, that, that I think that's a, a, a big part of why they approached him. It was a very poor reading of the situation, but I think they saw that that he commanded the respect of uh, of of the bonus marchers and of veterans in general, um, and that and that you know he could lead them. Um, what they got wrong was that he wasn't leading them for his own sake. He wasn't leading them uh, for his own power um, or or to achieve uh, his own ends, um, as as he says to uh, the congressional committee when he blows the whistle um, and and uh, decides to testify against Jerry Maguire and and uh, and and the business uh, plotters as as they were known. And it was not just a conspiracy theory. This this went pretty far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says he uh, he says uh, uh, you know my, my one goal here is is uh, preserving a democracy. And he tells Jerry Maguire, you know, if you if you raise up uh, uh, five hundred thousand soldiers 
uh, uh, you know, trying to do anything that smells of fascism, uh, I'll, I'll raise up uh, 500,000 of my own and we'll have a, a real war here at home. Um, and he was, you know, so that, 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 you know, in, in his, in his anti-war years, um, he was still, he was still willing to, uh, to, to fight against fascism and, and for democracy as he saw it. So last thing, I know we're running up right up against the hour here, that title, Gangsters of Capitalism. What is so fascinating to me about Smedley Butler is that, you know, this this idea of war is a racket. You know, I think we later see it uh, when Dwight Eisenhower talks about uh, the military industrial complex in his Mm -hmm. farewell speech. But what Butler does is he names names. He says, you know, I helped see to it that Standard Oil uh, went its way. Uh, unmolested. Uh, I helped make Honduras right, quote unquote, for American fruit companies in 1903. He names names. He names the Brown brothers and, uh, you know, Sullivan and Cromwell. So maybe just in brief here, who are the ultimate gangsters of capitalism that he is speaking about? I mean, he's he's talking about, you know, he's he's talking about capitalists in in the sense in which uh, uh, the word uh, used to be used um, and also, uh, you know, maybe in, in a more academic setting still are like people who own capital, people who own a lot of capital. Um, uh, and, and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's talking about, he's talking about, you know, you might call them captains of industry, uh, you know, major manufacturing magnates. Um, you know, I mean, you know, uh, today, uh, you know, he, he, you know, he, the, 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 the inheritors of that, um, are, you know, people like, you know, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, um, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, probably Elon Musk. I mean, you know, people who are uh, pe- people who are very wealthy, who are very powerful and can and can and, and can bend the system to their own ends. Also, by the way, you know, the, the oligarchs of Russia um, and, uh, uh, you know, he is. And by the way, a lot of the people that he's talking about are still around. Sullivan and Cromwell is still a very influential uh, law firm. Uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, J.P. Morgan is now J.P. Morgan Chase. That's still around. Citibank, which uh, you know, which which asked for the uh, the invasion and occupation of Haiti, uh, still around. City Citigroup, Citibank, um, and uh, uh, yeah, United Fruit is now Chiquita Brands International. Standard Fruit is now Dole Food Company. I mean, like you know, these 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 haven't gone away. Um, you know, he's 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 arguing. He's he's making a blunt argument. And 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 there are ways to problematize it, and I'm not I'm not trying to to soft pedal that. But the argument that he's making is that you know uh, uh, when Americans go to war, we are told always that we are going to fight for democracy, that we are that we are going to to that, that we are fighting for freedom against the forces that would end freedom. You know, we're fighting against tyranny, and and Butler is saying. No, that's that is that is not that is not always the case. It is generally not the case, um, you know, that, that, that every time that he went to war and this is true, every time that he went to war, it was on behalf of some large American economic interest um, all the way back to 1898. If you really look at why we got into into the war uh, for Cuba, it was because of sugar. I mean that it's again. This is blunt, and 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 there are ways to problematize it, and there are lots of 
at factors and there were some Cuban exiles who wanted American military involvement. And there's a whole lot of ways to, to have a, a larger conversation about it. Uh, but as I as I as I quote, uh, you know, in, in, in the book and in, 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 you know, one of the first chapters of the book, um, you know, the arguments that were being made on the floor of Congress, which, you know, had still had the recognized power to declare war uh, at that time, were saying uh, you know, every share of an American stock, you know, will be worth, you know, more today than it was before we went to war with Spain. This will be good for business. Um, and and Butler and 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 Butler is Butler is laying that bare. And and you know, we have to take that seriously. And I think that right now, you know, uh, in in you know, it's what at, at this moment. I don't I I don't know when you'll you'll get this out, but if, if you don't mind me me putting a date on when we're talking here, it's February twenty third, twenty twenty two. I'm just saying that because things are moving so fast in in uh, in Ukraine and Eastern Europe that God knows what'll happen. Even you know, in the couple of hours after we talk, much less you know when 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 uh, people are listening to this. Um, you know, I, it, it is it is it is important to understand um, that you know that that multiple things can be true at once. Like you can have Smedley Butlers who 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 you know join the military and are in the military and are carrying out their orders uh, because uh, initially or whatever or 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 they think that somehow in the long term it will work out this way um, that they are fighting for democracy. And you can have as in. Cuba in 19 in, in uh, 1898 you know the, the the people that we were fighting against in Cuba the, the Spanish they were horrible they invent invented concentration camps you know to 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 terrorize and, and torture the Cuban people like they the, you know people weren't making that up um but but it is but it is also important to to look at the ways in which and and this is happening right now um, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the modern day gangsters of capitalism, uh, you know, the, the arms industry um, and, and everybody else who, who you know, the, the energy industry, everybody who, who sees a way to wring a little bit of, uh, of profit out of heightening the tensions to 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 wring profit from, uh, uh, you know, flooding uh, you know, Ukraine with with weaponry, um, you know, who who sort of are, are, you know, they're engaged in kind of a a bourgeois private sector brinksmanship. Um, uh, you have to look that their that that their motives that their, their motives are 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 economic. But their motives are 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 that 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 in in those instances it is one would be very hard pressed to say that that their that their motive in in ramping up a conflict is is to is to uh, help anybody except themselves and, and their shareholders, um and and in that sense I think that Butler's uh, Butler's warnings um, ring true today. I don't think that any of this is a playbook for how to you know, definitively make decisions in, in case after case, right? It, it, it is, it, you know, I, I don't think that we can say that like, you know, you know, read war as a racket and you'll know exactly what to do uh, with Russia and Ukraine because there's nothing in there that will tell you what to do with that. But it just tells you to be more self-critical, to be, to, 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 to take a, a much harder look in the mirror, to interrogate everyone's motives and then use that kind of, you know, critical reasoning uh, to to come up with with uh, an answer which may be uh, less pretty than the ones that we're used to, um, but hopefully will will end up being more correct. I just want to say on my end, first off, I want to I want to thank you, and I also want to say two big things that I got out of this book were that in a way 
Smedley Butler and the Marines of his generation, you know, this is the negative side of things. In a way, they helped deliver the empire we live in today. Uh, at the same time, uh, the positives are, are there for Smedley Butler as well. And one thing that I think gets missed is that in a lot of ways, Smedley Butler is the ultimate, you know, support our troops guy. Like, yeah. really, a lot of his anti-war sentiment is, I don't want the troops uh, being harmed. And I don't want yeah. them fighting wars for economic interests. Yeah, that's that. That's 100 percent it. Uh, you know, Earl Browder, um, uh, the, the head of the Communist Party uh, at the time, you know, he says uh, when he says, uh, you know, he's he's he has no politics. He's saying, you know, he's just a soldier fighting for the soldiers. That's what he's talking about. Um, you know, whatever you think of Earl Browder, the communists of the 1930s or today. But um, but, you know, it, it is. But but that's very much it. I mean, Butler Butler is his his, you know, it, it, to the death. Um, you know, he is a Marine. Uh, and, 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 you know, he's known as the Levinex friend for a reason, because he saw himself as the protector of, of his troops. Um, and, and it was on, on their behalf right up until the end um, that, that he was doing what he was doing. And, 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 and what he really wanted above all uh, was to, to, to not see, uh, you know, more, more, uh, more people, you know, get, get thrown into, into the, into the, uh, uh, the combine of war. Um, and 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 either uh, come out mauled or or not come out the other side. Um, that was what he really wanted. And uh, you know th there are other there are other reasons to be anti-war, um, but uh, uh, you know whatever 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 equation you put in, uh, you know co coming out with the answer uh, that we should do everything that we can to to minimize harm and and minimize uh, uh, death and and maximize benefit for the maximum amount of people in the world. Um, I, th I think I think ultimately Smelly Butler would be all for and, and I think that's one of the reasons to look back to him. Well, thank you again, Jonathan M. Katz. Please, uh, if you enjoyed our conversation, listeners, uh, purchase his book, Gangsters of Capitalism. It's one of my favorite books uh, this year so far. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next up, journalist Liza Featherstone joins us to discuss her Jacobin Magazine obituary, a very critical one, of the diplomat Madeline Albright. Liza is also, of course, an accomplished author who has written a number of books on different topics, including feminism, workers' rights, and even in her latest book, Divining Desire, the history of focus groups and consultation culture. Very, very interesting book, and I was so happy to be able to speak with Liza because I've read her work, and I think she has a lot of valuable insights. So with that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Liza Featherstone, offering a critical view of the recently passed Madeline Albright. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been wanting to have on for some time, uh, Liza Featherstone, American journalist and author of a number of books, including uh, one of my favorites in the past few years, uh, Divining Desire, Focus Groups and the Culture of Consultation. How are you doing today? I'm very well. How are you? Good, good. And I wanted to have you on because you have a piece in uh, Jacobin Magazine entitled 
Madeline Albright was a killer. So for my listeners, you know, if they've been living under a rock, who was Madeline Albright? And I'm assuming they know because uh, she's been in the headlines with her passing for the past, you know, few days now. So. Yeah, so for sure. So everybody's seen the headlines. Um, she, um, she, she, she passed away um, and, um, and almost every single um, headline announcing her death um, characterized her as first woman secretary of state. Um, and she was that. Um, and, um, um, and she was secretary of state during the Clinton administration. Um, so that's in the 1990s. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I just saw all these headlines and I thought, um, wow, um, that's, you know, as, as a feminist, it's a little bit, um, it seems a little bit reductive to me, <laughs> you know, when somebody, um, when someone is, is that important a um, player in the world to reduce them to, you know, just first woman, um, anything. Um, and um, and secondly, um, I felt that a lot of the commotion around her was um, pretty um, hagiographic. Um, that is to say, um, we were hearing a lot of praise of Madeleine Albright, and um, and I'd say that um, her legacy in the world is um, a lot more complicated than just yay woman trailblazer. <laughs> so um, so I had more to say than that. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I think there's been a lot of, oh, she she didn't even retire. You know, what a what a fighter against ageism. And I I don't know. I'm sure there's been a lot of people saying uh, Madeleine Albright was a girl boss. Absolutely. There uh, there, there certainly has been. Um, And um, as far as I'm concerned, it would have been much better had she retired long ago. Um, and I could say some of the reasons why I, I think that um, her, um, her, her legacy was actually um, um, so, uh, so terrible. Um, and it, it sheds a little bit of a light uh, of light on, um, you know, who, um, um, how uncritically we sometimes cheer these, these, these girl bosses. Um, you know, the, the Clinton administration came to power at a time when um, the the they were it was really the first the first real post Cold War administration. Um, the um, I mean there had been the Bush administration the first Bush administration, but that was really a bit of a transition. Um, the um, so so it was going to fall to whoever was in the Clinton administration to start carving out the new world order um, after the Soviet US rivalry um, had collapsed. Um, And Madeleine Albright um, was very determined to do so in a way that um, left the US as the top superpower in the world. That is not a project that could be done nonviolently. Um, and, and in my opinion, not a project that should have been done at all. Um, the uh, um, so, so her, you know, her vision was um, uh, one in which the um, U.S. Um, U.S. power would reign unchecked, um, and um, and you know she um, she she actually began that project um, as um, when she was 
um, United Nations ambassador before for Clinton before she became Secretary of State. Um, and there she really um, um, butted heads with Boutros Boutros Ghali, who was um, then UN Secretary General over, um, um, you know, over over issues of American power and American supremacy. And she really plotted um, successfully to get him out um, of that office. Um, however, um, much worse, um, I mean, that, that, that sort of reflected um, her very American-centric worldview, um, but much worse, she established the US as, um, as a, um, you know, a, a power whose military would solve problems, you know, who should be the, go, that the go-to for solving problems should be um, US military power. At one point, um, Colin Powell um, later wrote, who, who I have also re wrote a very negative <laughs> obit about, but, but he looks a little bit better in this story that I'm about to relate. Um, at one point, um, Colin Powell um, described a conversation that he had with her later in his, his memoirs um, where, um, uh, in which she said, it, you know, he's resisting a US a military intervention um, someplace. And she says to him, what's the good of having this um, great strong military if we don't ever get to use it? And he says, you know, and he writes, I almost had an aneurysm which is like strong language for uh, these, you know, U.S. bureaucrats to write about one another. <laughs> um, and uh, um, and uh, but one of the things that was, um, I think that's most horrifying when we look at um, Madeleine Albright's history, um, a, a couple, um, just, a, just a couple further things about um, for, from the 1990s. Um, when we think of um, the war in Iraq, um, we think, oh, George Bush, bad, because that's when most um, Americans started paying attention and when U U.S. Um, liberals and leftists really started protesting um, what was going on there. Um, but um, when Madeleine Albright was Secretary of State, the U.S. was already bombing Iraq several times a week. Um, and there were crippling um, sanctions on that country um, that um, were uh, that were um, starving people and depriving them of medicine. Um, and at one point um, in the 1990s, um, Madeleine Albright was interviewed by 60 Minutes. Leslie Stahl, like this is not like Amy Goodman, you know, like she's she's on 60 Minutes, and Leslie Stahl says we've um, we've heard that the sanctions have killed. Um, half a million Iraqi children. Um, and um, by the way, my editors um, told me that that figure had, had later been disputed. Um, I've actually seen a lot about it. Um, yeah, I, I was gonna say it, really quickly, uh, yeah. I, I think the, the London School of Economics came out with a study saying, oh, the numbers may have been lower, they may have been like 200,000, but to me it's like 200,000, half a million. I mean, those are all bad numbers. <laughs> I mean, it's just all so sad, like that's a lot of children, you know, like, uh, but yes, fair. You know, maybe The Lancet was uh, the very reputable publication that made the first estimate of half a million later that was um that was contested other studies were done it was still a lot so so she's asked about this half a million um 
Albright, um, to her credit, does not um, <laughs> does not get nitpicky about the number. Um, but she says, um, um, she says basically, she says yes. Um, we um, we we have we have heard that and um and it's um it's a it's a heavy price to pay but we believe that the price is worth it so she she said that it to her um that the, um, the lives of half a million other people's children were effectively just you know the price of doing empire, and I think that really sums up um, Madeleine Albright's worldview. So you know, once again, she was much more than a girl boss. If we could go back briefly there, so she had issues with Colin Powell, as you pointed out, and I guess uh, Powell had something called the, the Powell Doctrine, this idea that the United yes. States should limit <laughs> its military interventions yes, to basically national interests. Yes. But Albright has a very different view. Uh, no, we, we should get involved everywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, no, thank you for thank you for clarifying. That was the source of their conflict um, always um, was. So the, the Powell doc doctrine, um, you know, which would define um, where U.S. military um, intervention should take place. Um, more broadly than I would personally think, I should say. Um, I, I don't think that just because the US has an interest um, in, in something we should necessarily um, have a war, um, but, that was, but, but that was his rough guideline, which was a very reasonable by um, US bourgeois standards. Um, and, uh, um, and yeah, no, um, Madeleine Albright took a much, uh, a much broader view um, she um, she eagerly involved the U.S. in um, bombing Serbia, also at the time. Um, the other thing that um, um, where, where we so yeah, interesting that you should bring up Powell because I, I think it is important to note that there are often a wide range of um, policy. Um, views you know in like you know that that we sort of think of the us as being this monolith and it does these things but there are often these policymakers that have these these disagreements and so actually it really is fair to blame individuals sometimes you know sometimes people are like don't blame institutions as individuals it's all institutions it's like well no you know an individual like madeline albright has a lot of power to advance their own vision just as colin powell advanced his which was different um and um and um but another example of that is um in the post-Cold War era, there was a lot of disagreement about um, how the U.S. should relate to the new Russia. And, you know, and we're seeing, of course, that it would have been really great if we, they had figured this out um, a little bit better, <laughs> given the situation now. Yeah. It's crazy because there was so much debate. And there were even people yeah. saying uh, NATO expansion is a bad idea. And it's not even leftists necessarily exactly. saying that it's people like George Kennan, you know. Exactly. Exactly. So um so at the time um so so people like George Kennan argued that um that NATO expansion was a bad idea and um and would uh, would anti would necessarily antagonize Russia NATO expansion uh, into the eastern european um countries 
um, and um, and Madeleine Albright disagreed, and she led the charge on on NATO expansion. And we're seeing now a direct um, um, a, a, a direct um, consequence of that world that Madeleine Albright helped create, in which the, in in which um, Russia. Um, is extremely antagonized and um, and and provoked and fighting back. I'm not saying that that justifies anything that Putin is doing, but um, realists realists like George Kennan saw this coming and predicted it at the time. So um, yeah, it is um, again. It is sometimes fair to blame some individuals. So if we could, I also wanted to go back to um, UN Secretary General Putraskali. So I guess their initial flare up had to do with um, the publication of a UN report arguing that the Israeli attack on a refugee camp in Lebanon was uh, deliberate rather than not a mistake. But you, you delve into that a little bit more deeply and get into how there may have been more to it than even that. Yeah, so that was um th- that was the reason that um Boutros Boutroskali um thought um that he was being scapegoated and um and I-, I would certainly take that seriously as one reason but um um but at the time the US denied that that was the reason um and um and um and they uh, US officials at the time um attributed it to um to you know, to other kinds of policy differences, um, you know, especially especially around um, especially around NATO and and what should be done in Syria. I'm sorry, Serbia. Um, but um, but the um, but the the gist uh, there's but there actually seem to have been a lot of different disagreements, and the gist really seems to have been um, different visions about. Um, what the world should look like? Should it be a multilateral, genuinely multilateral um, world in which a lot of, um, uh, in which you know, countries were sort of um, an international community making decisions together, um, or should it be, um, you know, a, a world in which the U.S. calls the shots? And um, Madeleine Albright demonstrated um, that she much preferred the latter, and she um, she she fought to advance that vision. There was also kind of a a giant dog whistle around the U.N. because um, just making sort of reforming the UN um, and demonizing Boutros, Boutros Ghali um, for political ends, um, because, um, you know. Do you, do you uh, think she was trying to appeal to, there's always been these elements of the right wing that really yeah. despise the UN. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And we we, we think, uh, like, like it's, it's so easy to get caught up in your own time and think, that the um, that the Republicans have never been so crazy before, but you know that I mean they were so crazy then too. I mean there were and so the, so there was a the hatred of the UN was huge on the far right then, um, and in I mean and while the far it, it was sort of it was very much the same as now. While the far right would say these really crazy conspiracy 
um, things about the UN and world government, like plots to, you know, for world government and, you know, black helicopters and so forth. The, the mainstream Republicans would basically echo those talking points, but just a little bit cleaned up, you know, I mean, and they would, and they were extremely paranoid about the UN and would, you know, sort of dog whistle, you know, saying stuff about the UN to fire up their base. Um, and it had a definitely a racist edge, like even though, you know, we think of Bob Dole as being, you know, um, so, you know, such a like a wholesome, like grandfather, because he was kind of funny. Um, but, you know, he was actually like, he would say like, Boutros, Boutros Galley and kind of mispronounce the guy's name, you know, in this deliberately racist way to make it sound really foreign, you know, like, 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 of course, Americans don't want to, you know, take direction from this guy. And, you know, it was, it, it was really like, uh, there, there was definitely, uh, um, Albright, it sounds like Albright was pandering to those sort of Bob Dole types uh, in an attempt to out. Yes. She was pandering to the Bob Dole types in a racist way, a covertly racist way, um, while also advancing her own very coherent vision for U.S. domination, which differed from Boutros Boutros Galley. So it was a um, it, her, 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 her desire to politically pander to the yahoos was compatible with her political, her personal political goals. Um, but, you know, so she did, so, so, so that, that was, that was how she went about it. I, I guess everyone is, uh, as you said, engaging in hagiography uh, around Albright right now. Why do you think everyone's sort of ignoring, you know, th this is someone who believed in, um, you know, U.S. full spectrum dominance essentially around the globe. Well, I think one thing is um, a lot of people still believe in that. You know, I mean that a lot of Americans um, still do um, kind of believe in American exceptionalism. I mean, every day in my inbox, I get these emails from um, Heather Cox Richardson, a person who apparently believes in fairy tales, you know, but like, you know, I just like these, you know, Heather Cox Richardson is a, is a historian. She's very intelligent. Um, you know, she, um, she teaches at um, Boston University and, um, and she writes a substack every day about current affairs. Um, and, um, and it's usually, you know, very, informed and situating us in historical context ever since the um putin started waging war on ukraine it's been just like unmitigated american exceptionalism every day every day heather cox richardson's email it's so bizarre it's it's like, almost like people think <laughs> it's almost like people think that history started yesterday or it started whenever putin invaded ukraine i know and all of a sudden now the U.S. and all its friends are on the side of democracy. Everyone else is on the side of dictatorship. And it's very simple. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of people want to believe those things, you know, and so that's um, that's part of it. I think also a lot of people um, don't remember that time that well, you know, a lot. A lot has happened. It's been a rough 
couple decades, even if people like, I mean, I was alive then and an adult, you know, so I remember it, but um, I mean, but, um, but even so to write that piece, I had to go back and reread, like, you know, read about all this stuff again. It wasn't like on the tip of my mind. Do you think any of it, because as a journalist, I'm just curious what you think about this. Uh, do you think there's also, you know, oh, we don't really want to say anything critical of Albright because she was, uh, I mean, she was sort of a power player basically. And it's like, oh, don't, don't want to offend anyone and lose access. Yeah. I think to some extent. Yeah. I, I think that um, you definitely do not see a lot of um, respectable people um, um, making, making these criticisms. And I think, um, I think that's certainly, um, I think that's certainly some of it. Um, I mean, I think, I think that also for, um, you know, for um, reasonably privileged white people, Americans, um, the nineties was a good time. People remember it fondly, you know, um, and um, it wasn't a very good time if you were an Iraqi person, you know, I mean, or like a lot of other people around the globe. Um, and um, and it's, it certainly wasn't a very good time if you were, you know, a person on welfare dealing with the austerity policies of the Clinton administration or anything like that, or- Or, or, or one of the people that was out as a, or what was that term, uh, Hillary Clinton, super predators? I was just thinking of yeah. that. Yeah, right. If you, unless you were a person experiencing mass incarceration under the, um, uh, under the super predator um, hunting regime. Um, yeah, I mean, so it wasn't very good for a lot of people, but it was a pretty good time for, uh, um, for, for well-off um, white people. And I, th I think people, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nostalgia for it as sort of a, a time where the, um, where at least the moderates were in power um, and, um, and, and also, you know, you know, before, um, I, I, th I think that, um, I, I think that a lot of people, a lot of those people see, um, have, have ceased to be able to ignore the problems in our world, you know, between the pandemic and climate change and the um, really militant rise of the violent right um that you know they've sort of really ceased to be able to ignore the problems in the world and they kind of miss <laughs> the 90s when they were able to ignore all of this stuff a bit better um so i, I think that's part of it someone like madeleine albright um you know uh, evokes that we're certain we'll probably see an even more um disgusting outpouring of nostalgia and um and um praise when Hillary Clinton passes, but for, fortunately she seems alive and well, so we don't have to worry about that just yet. <laughs> real, real quick, because um, I, I know we only have maybe a few more minutes left, but uh, it's interesting. There is so much we forget from the 90s, uh, including, right, yeah. you know, I was glad that you mentioned uh, Dennis Halliday, who was the UN Assistant Secretary General. Right. He was one of the people that resigned over these yeah. sanctions. And people yeah. completely forget those sanctions caused an uproar among certain people in the UN. Uh, Hans von Sponix, another one. There were a lot of people that were like, these sanctions are wrong. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, even I had forgotten about Dennis Halliday until I I I started to uh, I started to research for this piece and I was like, oh yeah, I remember that guy, you know, and you know, he's and you know, he spoke very clearly and powerfully and knowledgeably about it at the time, you know, like it was that this this was all known, but it kind of um it it gets um it gets lost in the um, um there's the fog of war but then there's also just the general fog of american exceptionalism as we do you think uh some people because i know a lot of people on the left are talking about the iraqi sanctions and what albright had to say about that you know that that mm-hmm. the famous line you mentioned um right. you know it was worth it but that was not her only uh She also had other views on foreign policy and other things she did that were pretty, um, you know, I I would say if you're a leftist, you would be against them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I I mean, her 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 saying that was terrible and really chilling. But um, but what was even worse was that she presided over the policy itself. um, you know the the policy it, it's itself of depriving the Iraqi people of of food and medicine, um, and of the um, you know essentially starting the Iraq War under the Clinton administration with the regular um, bombings of that country. Um, and um, I, I guess and, what and I meant though was there there were other bombings during yes. the Clinton administration. Yeah. Yes, many other bombings, many other bombings, um, and. Um, um, yeah, I mean, and 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 there were and then there were bombings that were under the guise of NATO, but of course, um, of course, led by and championed by the United States, um, like the um, like the bombings in Kosovo, Serbia. Um, you know, there was you know there were there yeah there there was there, there was quite a lot. Um, you know, so um, I, I think there is really a. Um, yeah, that that line is particularly chilling, and it's it's sort of almost like it's sort of Henry Kissinger like in its in its creepiness, um, and I think that people should be shocked and distressed by it. Um, but you know, I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's we should look at it not just as a, like a um, not just as what's so terrible about Madeleine Albright is that she said that. What's so terrible about Madeleine Albright is this whole whole um, ghoulish vision of American foreign policy that she had. I just had uh, one or two more questions. Um, the the first one, I guess. You know, you you've been uh, reporting for some time now, I, uh, for years now, and I, I'm just curious. You've seen a lot, so you've you've seen the Iraq War. You're we're seeing what happens now with um, Russia and Ukraine, and I feel like th- there's these instances where if you're critical of the U.S. or you're critical of NATO, people will say, "Oh, are you pro Putin now?" Or you know, back when it was uh, the Iraq War, it was, "Oh, you must be pro Saddam," or yeah. uh, "Oh, do you agree with everything Serbia is doing when when those bombings were happening?" How are we supposed to? How do you think we should thread the needle? when talking about being critical of NATO yeah. and U.S. interventionism. Yeah, well, I think it, it's really hard. Um, and, and I think that, um, I think there's a lot of the left that has um, struggled 
um, for consensus. I, I think the left is, has actually really struggled for consensus on this um, for a long time. Um, I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, during, um, during the Vietnam War, um, a lot of the left was sort of able to say, well, you know, actually, um, we, um, we kind of support the North Vietnamese um, because you know, against our own government, because, um, you know, some, and some people felt that, you know, they supported the North Vietnamese because it was a communist government and communism was superior to capitalism. And some leftists, even if they didn't go that far, even if they didn't think that, um, that communism was superior to capitalism, um, thought, you know, it was at least a tie or that it wasn't a good reason to have, it wasn't a good reason to attack another country just because you, you know, didn't agree with their system of government, you know, so it was, it, it, there was a sort of a very clear um, um, and reasonable consensus on that, that um, you're not just against um, the US war, but to some extent you are in solidarity with the North Vietnamese and even with their government. You know, I think that that was a pretty, um, a pretty common, um, you know, and there were, um, there were sort of Cold War social Democrats that didn't agree with that exactly. And, you know, would sort of carve out their own, you know, special take, but mostly that was the left view, you know, solidarity with the North Vietnamese um, against, against our own government. Um, and, um, um, and that, I mean, and, and, and later on, you know, we, in the 1980s, um, a lot of leftists took a, um, a similar and, and in some ways even easier um, view of, of um, U.S. interventions in Latin America, you know, that we were in solidarity with those Latin American governments um, that were leftist um, against our own government. Um, and um, and that you know we were against our government's um, you know unlawful imperialist interventions, but we also supported those leftist governments, you know, and and thought that um, that they were worthy of support on principle. Um, so you know it's it's always a little easier to express the anti-war um, case in those situations, you know, um, that, where, where you can say those people and their government have our solidarity. Um, it's harder to, um, um, it's harder though I think equally important to, ex to express the view that, um, um, that um, a world in which you, the US um, did not wield the power um, and military might that it does would be a better and safer world, even if um, even if there are also a lot of awful monstrous governments <laughs> that are just as bad as ours, you know. And that doesn't sound very inspiring. Um, however, I believe it to be the truth, you know, but it's, um, but it's much, it's, it is not, um, it is not a positive vision in the way that, um, you know, in, in the way that, uh, you know, 
solidarity with the leftist Latin American governments is, for example. Um, you know, and, um, but I, I guess I think that um, it's, you know, I, I think there's a lot of pressure on leftists now to um, be, um, you know, to be, be more nuanced. Um, and that often means um, supporting um, U violent U.S. Um, force, um, you know, against, um, you know, against, against other, other governments or other actors that we're deeming to be even worse than our own. And I'm, you know, I'm just unreconstructed and I think that we should all be, I don't think that U.S. imperialism um, has ever made the world better. Um, I think, I don't think that spending so much money on the military is good for our society. As Martin Luther King said many decades ago, a nation that spends this much money on its military rather than um, on um, feeding and clothing and educating its own people is approaching spiritual death. I think that remains true. Um, and uh, um, yeah, and so um, I've, I think that what Putin is doing in Ukraine is terrible. I think there, the U.S., other than diplomacy, has nothing positive to add to the situation. I, I wanted to add to that. I liked how you, you said the whole thing about uh, nuance, because it seems like whenever people say yeah. nuance in this country politically, what they're saying is nuance means we're going to push you a little bit more right wing. We're going to keep it pushing you more to the right. It, it, it does always mean that. And, I, you know, I feel sort of, you know, I mean, I'm an intellectual and I read things, you know, I don't I don't want to be sort of I, I, I feel like I sound like such a, a knucklehead being like, no, nuance is bad. But at the same time, it is always used in that ideological way, like, oh, you should really be more nuanced here. It's like, you know, some of the things that um, you know, leftists have been saying for decades are still true. So the last thing I wanted to touch upon, and I, I also just wanted to mention this briefly, I did not know until reading this article that Albright had a consultant company, uh, oh consulting company. Yes, we forgot to even talk about that. Yeah. So speaking of, um, yes, so she was, uh, you know, people were like, oh, wow, she was so badass. She never retired and she just kept working. Well, it it would have been great um, if she had retired because um, she had this consulting company, and um, one of the things that they did was it um, advise pharmaceutical companies, specifically Pfizer, um, on um, how to protect their patents. Um, and you know, those of you who've been following. Um, the um, news closely over the last couple of years know that pharmaceutical companies holding onto their patents and not being forced by governments to share them, um, not specifically not being forced by the U.S. to share them, um, is um, really responsible for um, the global vaccine divide we have between rich countries and poor countries, um, and a lot of mass death in poor countries. Um, and it's also probably responsible that that, that global vaccine divide is, 
going to be partly responsible if we never see this pandemic fully go away in our lifetime. Because, um, because in a global world, if some people are, um, you know, if some people are affected by a pandemic, er um, everyone is eventually. And so, yeah, thanks a lot, Madeline Albright. It would have been nice if you'd, you know, retired to hang out with your friends or your grandkids or whatever. So, so tying this all up in a little bow, just to, to wrap it up here, you know, I, I think there's aspects of Albright's biography that, you know, you, you can at least have empathy for her family fleeing Nazi persecution yeah. and whatnot. Uh, but, yeah. you know, this whole issue of, uh, oh, my gosh, she was the first woman. Uh, and, you know, what a girl boss. I, I want you to talk a little bit about that, because I know you've written a lot about uh, feminism and you don't write necessarily about, you know, a fake form of feminism, but uh, sort of a, a, a neoliberal sort of upper middle class feminism uh, that only benefits, you know, people from a certain tier of society. Do you think Albright is sort of emblematic of that? I do. Um, I, I think you, I think you expressed just expressed it pretty well. Um, you know, I think that um, it, it's it, it's that. Um, I mean, that's sort of the definition of girl boss feminism, I guess, is the um, is a, a feminism that only uh, um, benefits um, those at the top. Um, this was, um, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, Bolshevik um, activist Alexandra Kollontai um, co um, called this um, bourgeois feminism. Um, and, um, and we would today call it liberal feminism, um, but it remains the same. And Colin Ty's criticism um, back then was, you know, look, the, um, they just want to, um, these feminists just want to um, improve their own standing um, within the upper class. And they don't care about the rest of um, the, um, the, the of, of work. They don't care about working women. They don't care about the rest of, of, of women. Um, they, they do not. Um, they they don't um, have our. They don't have solidarity for us. Um, and you know, and and I, I, I think it's important not to interrupt you. But I like the way you and others have framed it better than than some people I've seen who will say, "Oh, that's just." That's not feminism. No, I think it is a form of feminism. It is. Um, that that's exactly right. Um, my my publisher did call um, my Hillary Clinton collection um, the um, uh, it, it, we did we we did subtitle it the faux feminism of Hillary Clinton, but that was a bit of cheekiness um, because of course um, Hillary Clinton um, is a feminist. Uh, Madeline Albright was a feminist. Um, th these are, uh, it's just that um, bourgeois feminism is different than feminism for the 99%. Um, it, it is, a, it, it is, it's, it is, its specific goals are to um, help women advance in these, um, um, in, in these, in these power structures. Lean in feminism. Yes, or lean in feminism might, might be another contemporary way to refer to it. And, um, and, and, and as, as we can see, um, that's, you know, th that, that's not always, that's not always progressive. You know, if you are, um, you know, if, if, if your, if your goal is to get into power to, um, 
make more misery and war upon the world. Um, uh, honestly, it might have been better if you stayed home. <laughs> you know, so um, we support. Uh, I think we, we need to advance a. Um, a, a we need a more inclusive feminism, a and I don't mean that in the neoliberal way, but exactly uh, um, a a global a feminism of the global ninety nine percent. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, this will be the start of a of a new generation. Uh, Madeline Albright has passed on. Maybe there's going to be an uh, I don't know I try to be hopeful but sometimes the death can be a kind of a birth <laughs> yes <laughs> That's right. well I want to thank you again Liza uh, Featherstone for coming on Parallax Views how can my listeners keep up with your work and uh, do you have any other projects coming up yeah, I mean, I, I, I write for Jacobin just about every week. So that's a good place to look for it. Um, and um, so if, if you like um, stuff like this, um, that's definitely the place to look. And I also write um, every other week for the New Republic. Um, those, are, um, those pieces are usually specifically about climate change. Um, and for people who um, like um, this whole question of um, bourgeois versus proletarian feminism, um, I am working on uh, something for or books that'll be out later this year. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Liza Featherstone and before that, Jonathan M. Katz. If you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. A monthly donation of one, five, 10, 15, or if you're feeling really generous, $100 is what will keep this show going. It's not easy doing three to four shows a week, but I aim to give you the highest quality content I can. And if you appreciate it, head over to the Patreon and show your financial support. And to those who already do, I remain eternally grateful for your help. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerilax View to Parallax View with Jerilax View. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.